From the CQ Roll Call Newsroom in Washington, this is the Week Ahead Podcast, your nonpartisan news source for how Congress and the federal government shape the real world. I'm Sean Zeller, Deputy Editor of CQ Magazine. And on the show today, we will discuss two issues important to the United States' national defense. First, the future of the Iran deal, and later, the spate of deadly accidents that have plagued the military. On October 13th, President Trump decertified the agreement his predecessor, Barack Obama, reached with Iran two years ago to get Iran to give up its nuclear program in return for a lifting of sanctions. The decision doesn't end the deal, but throws it to Congress, which could now move to reimpose sanctions or alter the terms of the agreement. I'll talk about what's likely to happen now with Rachel Oswald, our foreign affairs correspondent, and Kelsey Davenport, Director for Nonproliferation Policy at the Arms Control Association, a group that seeks to end nuclear proliferation and supports the deal. And later on the show, I will talk with John Donnelly, CQ's defense reporter, about his cover story for CQ magazine on the deadly accidents that have plagued the military and why more money is likely not the solution. Welcome to all of you. Kelsey. So you disagree with President Trump, who says the Iran deal is not in the United States' interest. Why so? I think it's critical to remember why the United States began negotiating with Iran. Iran's nuclear program was rapidly advancing. They could have produced enough fissile material for one nuclear weapon in two to three months back in 2013. Now, as a result of the deal, Iran's pathways to nuclear weapons are verifiably blocked, International inspectors have greater access to monitor and verify that Iran is meeting strict limits. So in short, I support the deal because it's working. It's ended the nuclear crisis with Iran and brought some stability to the Middle East on this issue. And I think moving forward, it's critical to maintain that. There's no reason for Trump to disrupt the deal. Now, you mentioned verification there. Tell us a little bit about that. What, how do we know that the deal is working, that Iran is complying with it, its end of the bargain? Well, the deal put in place a multi-layered monitoring and verification regime that puts every element of Iran's nuclear fuel supply under strict surveillance. There's continuous monitoring on key activities like uranium enrichment, and inspectors have daily access to key nuclear sites. Additionally, if inspectors have concerns about illicit activities at areas outside of Iran's declared nuclear program, like military sites, they can request access to Iran. By, to, to the sites from Iran. And Iran cannot block that access under the deal. So it's critical that inspectors continue to maintain this access. Okay. And Trump's decision, um, does it change Iran's responsibilities now that he's decertified the deal? The certification is a requirement under U.S. law. It itself is not tied to the nuclear deal with Iran. So Iran's responsibilities remain unchanged. But President Trump is trying to change Iran's responsibilities unilaterally. And that's why I think his approach is so dangerous. He's seeking to have Congress pass legislation that would unilaterally extend restrictions on Iran's nuclear program under threat of sanctions. That's a violation of the deal, and it's a strategy that Washington's negotiating partners do not support. And it's critical that the United States do not, does not go down this path because it could violate and blow up the agreement. And has Iran indicated uh, its reaction at all? Well, Iran's leadership has said that they are committed to maintaining the nuclear deal as long as possible. But they said if Washington violates the deal, Iran can only be pushed so far. 
and eventually they may need to restart some of the nuclear activities halted under the deal. It's important to remember that this is a transactional agreement. Iran agreed to limits in return for sanctions relief. And if the United States isn't meeting its end of the bargain, Iran is likely to reciprocate. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but Trump's decision effectively does nothing unless Congress acts. And so now everything depends on whether Congress moves forward with legislation to alter the agreement or pull out of the agreement. But Congress could also do nothing and the agreement could persist. Exactly. So what withholding certification does is open a window of time during which Congress could reimpose nuclear sanctions waived under the deal on an expedited basis, meaning essentially if if legislation is introduced, it will be impossible to stop. That would surely violate the deal. It does not look like Congress is going to go down this path, however. Trump directed his administration to work with Congress to try and renegotiate parts of of the deal that he finds problematic, namely that some restrictions expire over time and that the deal does not address ballistic missiles. Now, if Congress follows this direction and tries to renegotiate through U.S. legislation these limits, that's a violation of the agreement, uh, and they would do so at the express disregard of Washington negotiating partners. You know, ultimately, I think that would cause the deal to collapse. All right, Rachel, you're up on the Hill every day. Um, since Trump made his announcement, what's been going on? Is there movement towards legislation? We're seeing no, in short, no. We're seeing uh, Senator Cotton and Senate Ar- Foreign Relations Chairman Bob Corker. Cotton's a- the Arkansas Republican. Tom right. Cotton, who's been a longtime critic of this deal. They have uh, a plan to introduce legislation um, potentially as soon as next week that would, as Kelsey said, uh, lay out a timeline where Congress would automatically reimpose sanctions if uh, Iran ever falls below the one-year threshold. But the details of that legislation are very much still in the works, according to uh, comments made by Senator Corker this week. I know from talking to him that he really does want to have bipartisan support on that. And the path to getting that feels very narrow. There were only four Senate Democrats in 2015 who voted against the nuclear deal. And three of those four have all criticized President Trump's decertification decision. And as Kelsey said, there is a method for having an expedited vote on this. But the legislation, as Corker is characterizing it, would not come up under that method. And so it required the traditional 60, 60 votes to, to pass in the Senate. And there there appears to be a very, very narrow path to getting that. I interviewed a number of moderate Senate Democrats this week who said that while they opposed decertification, they agreed that something must be done to deal with Iran's destabilizing regional activities. Corker has promised that Legislation will go through the normal committee process, so hearings, classified briefings, a committee markup. You mentioned a one-year threshold. What were you referring to? As, that's part of the legislation Cotton and right. Corker are uh, preparing. A one-year threshold means the amount of time it would take Iran to uh, put together enough fissile material to have a nuclear warhead that could be launched in an attack. And so there are... 52 Republicans in the Senate, and you mentioned there were three or four Democrats who were uh, critics or voted against this deal back in 2015. That doesn't add up to 60. No, and it didn't in 2015. They were not even able to, 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 to defeat the filibuster. I see. So of the 52 Republicans, are they coalescing around anything yet? 
The initial comments after President Trump's certification last week were fairly supportive of the move and and expressing, um, you know, interest in working on a legislative strategy. But uh, Congress and the Senate has been so busy this week. Looking at their schedule, it doesn't seem how they fit it in this year. And Corker told me uh, this week that he doesn't think that they will have a bill to pass before the end of the year. So, Rachel, you mentioned that Congress might look to do something about Iran's other destabilizing activities in the region, which were what? What were you referencing? So that includes uh, Iran's support for Syria's Bashar al-Assad regime, um, its support for um, the Houthi rebellion in Yemen, its longstanding support for Hezbollah in Lebanon, and support for uh, militia groups in Iraq that are playing a destabilizing role in, in that country. We have seen these efforts only expand since the nuclear deal was implemented. So the context here is that Iran continues to fund terrorist groups and, and destabilize the region, but it is complying with the nuclear agreement. And in the last two years, we've seen that the public has largely embraced it. A recent poll by CQ Parent, The Economist, found that people of all political stripes were in favor of keeping the deal. So has the dynamic changed at all uh, on Capitol Hill because of developments over the last two years? Well, we did see that in all the discussion before the decertification happened. You saw prominent Republicans like House Foreign Affairs Chairman Ed Royce, um, Republican of California, House Armed Services Chairman Mac Thornberry. They were saying, we've got to keep the deal in place, but we've just got to enforce the heck out of it. What with the North Korea nuclear crisis only worsening, there there is very little appetite outside a hardcore of Iran hardliners who do not want to add back in the threat of Iran's nuclear program at this time. All right. Thank you, Kelsey Davenport, for visiting us today. Thank you, Rachel Oswald, for coming on the show. And now we're going to turn to the deadly mishaps that have afflicted the military this year and John Donnelly, CQ's defense reporter. So, John, I want to turn to the issue of military readiness. And you wrote a cover story for CQ magazine this week in which you looked at this spate of high-profile and deadly accidents that have occurred this year with ships colliding, aircraft crashing. And it's led hawks in Congress to say the Defense Department needs more money. Now, you, you argued in your piece that that's not the case. Why so? Well, there's, there's sort of three things they're saying that are misleading to some degree. First, they say the accidents are up. That's not really true. They say that they would be solved if we had more money. That's not necessarily true. And they say that the defense budget is being gutted, and that's not really true. Um, so I can take them one at a time. Yeah, so the accidents issue. I mean, these seem like a big deal, but in the context of history, not as much. Well, they're certainly – I don't want to minimize them, first of all. They are a big deal, especially to those involved in the families, and, and so we're not in any way minimizing the significance of them. But, yeah, when you step back and you look at the statistics, which we took some time to do, you find that from 2016 to 2017 there was a spike in the number of incidents and in the fatalities. Uh, but when you step back and look at it, the 2016, 2017 are sort of among the lower years. In, in, we looked at the post-9-11 era. And basically the numbers have been dropping almost steadily year by year. And, and so – and that has a lot to do with the fact that it's a smaller military. 
but that's hard to explain it uh, all that way. Just to give you one statistic, the, the number of people in uniform is down 10% from its peak in, I think it was 2003, but the mishaps are down, I think, 53%. So the mishaps are, they're actually doing a really good job in terms, in terms of safety, but but so the Hawks are taking this this uh, short term spike and treating it as if it's it speaks to a larger phenomenon. And it really doesn't. In fact, the opposite appears to be the case. Well, if accidents are a problem, regardless, why not spend more money to try to solve it? Oh, sure. Um, you know, to the degree that more money is the answer. Uh, it may be a cultural thing. It may be a management thing that you can solve without an additional dollar. But uh it's probable that more money and resources dedicated to training, for example, uh, might help. We don't necessarily know that it would, but it might. And it's worth a try, yeah. But you see, the problem is uh, the solutions that are being offered are not necessarily going to lead in that in that direction. Uh, what people are talking about is, hey, let's increase the total amount of money for the military. And sure, they're saying let's provide more training. But when when you get down to it, for example... They're talking about, let's get more ships in the Navy. Let's get more sailors out there. But if you're to do that, you have to, you, first of all, they do not have, they are not adequately training and maintaining the ships that they have right now, training the people and maintaining the ships they have right now. If you're going to increase the size of the fleet, that's enormous resources, uh, especially if you're talking about increasing it to the level they're talking about. That's enormous resources to the support aspect of that. Are they going? Are they willing to do that? Is there enough money to do that in each of the services? I don't think so. Well, you note in your piece that the ships that had been involved in collisions, for example, had not received the training certifications that one might have expected, that they're out doing missions and not doing that sort of training. And so it raises the questions about balancing these missions with the training. Are the missions so vital? Can, can you scale those back and spend more time training? Well, you're going to have to. They're going to have to make some, some tough decisions. They're, right now, the Navy, especially in Asia, is stretched thin. They are just out on the water too much. They're doing too many patrols. They're not spending enough time for dedicated training periods. They're not spending enough time main, maintaining the ships, certifying all their skills. And so they're stretched thin. But the answer is not necessarily to give them more ships. The answer is to, uh, you know, is to number one, See if we can get some of our allies to perform some of these missions. It's easier said than done. Uh, number two, maybe accept some risk in some areas uh, instead of trying to do more than you are capable of doing. Uh, and number three, yeah, dedicate some money and some time to the, to the training. But it's going to be hard to do that while maintaining the same operational tempo. Now, President Trump said he wanted to sort of scale back our military involvement overseas. This would seem to lend itself to doing more training, getting the safety certifications, not being out on missions all the time. What's the administration saying here about the defense budget and how to deal with the mishap? Well, they're not necessarily talking in, in the kind of de about it in the kind of detail that we are right now. They, uh, when you say the administration, I mean, the Navy has been has been asked about it. But I, I do think that, you know, President Trump is onto something when he says that U.S. allies should do more around the world. But again, getting that to happen is very is very difficult. But there's definitely what I'm trying to point out is there's a huge conflict between this goal, for example, of expanding the size of the Navy, 
Navy from 277 to 355 ships. If you're going to do that, just to procure the ships requires a 60% increase in the procurement budget, okay, let alone the cost of actually operating and adequately maintaining them. So this is, to put it bluntly, this is an unattainable goal within the resources that are likely to become available. And that's just the Navy, but the same problem applies to the Defense Department writ large. The, the Hawks uh, want to have uh, more of everything, but the money is not going to be available to do that. It's just not. And so it's time, experts say, to sort of downsize what we're trying to do around the world and to, to save some money on things like infrastructure, they reported just this week there's 20% excess infrastructure. There's plenty of weapons that are on the drawing board and, and being uh, produced that we don't necessarily need to buy. There, there are ways to save money, but some part of it has got to be a scaling back of what we are trying to accomplish around the world. And that doesn't mean it's total retrenchment and retreat. It just means a smart allocation of risk. So let's talk about the dynamics on Capitol Hill. The defense hawks, the people who want to raise the Defense Department's budget, want, what, a trillion dollars or close to it? Well, um, they are right now, they're calling for $700 billion. Uh, and But when I talk to experts at the think tanks around town, they say what what is really needed, if you're going to have this policeman of the world uh, goal, what's really needed is north of $900 billion a year. And so, so even the $700 billion goal, which, it's, which is too high, politically speaking, to be reached, that's not even going to be accomplished. So everyone's talking about this huge budget and this huge military that America is not willing to pay for. Let's just put it bluntly. And so we need to make some hard choices. So the power on Capitol Hill is with those who favor a, a more restrained defense budget, those who are deficit hawks, Democrats who prefer more uh, domestic spending, they have the bulk of the power? Yes, uh, mainly because Republicans do not have the 60 votes they need to ram e everything through in the Senate. That gives the Democrats sort of veto power over this issue. And they can insist, if you're going to increase defense by a dollar, you have to increase non-defense by a dollar. And that's that's that limits uh, the, the, the maneuvering room, the negotiating space. And we've just shown that we're not, you know, we're willing to spend a heck of a lot on defense. And by the way, we are spending now equivalent to what we spent at the peak of the uh, Reagan era in inflation-adjusted terms. Which is what? Uh, well, it depends on how you slice it, but it's in the neighborhood of $600 billion. It can be sliced in different ways depending on how you define it. Um, but, uh, it, and it's, but it's less than it was a few years back in fiscal 2010. That was the, that was the historical peak. I'm talking post-World War II, by the way. Um, and we're down from there. But Hawks always say, well, it's these darn budget caps or sequestration, as they put it, that has uh, curtailed spending. But in reality, when you look at the decrease in the budget after fiscal 2010, it was mostly due to the end of the large occupations in Afghanistan and Iraq. That drove, I calculated at one point, about 75% of the decrease in that period. And in the last couple of years, the defense budget has gone up year to year. And under the Budget Control Act, the defense budget will continue to go up. And by the way, those uh, uh, increases that are laid out in the Budget Control Act, they'll be increased on Capitol Hill. Because every year since the Budget Control Act was enacted in uh, uh, 2011, Congress has added money 
to the caps, both defense and non-defense. All right. So Congress will decide soon what the Defense Department's budget will be for 2018. And we'll be looking to you, John, to fill us in again later in the year. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks, Kelsey Davenport from the Arms Control Association, John Donnelly, our military correspondent, and Rachel Oswald, our foreign policy reporter. I'm Sean Zeller. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on NPR One.